There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL draft this year. My name is Danny Kelly, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Heifetz, Ben Solak, and Craig Borlbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, including which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are not as good, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. It is Friday, February 16th. If you talk to people in the independent film community, it often seems like the sky is falling. It's so hard to get projects made. The old business model of selling off territory by territory to raise money to make the movie is being challenged by the global streamers. And there are just fewer opportunities in movie theaters these days for the kind of challenging adult-oriented films that used to be the backbone of the film business. That's why it's even more impressive that companies like the one that today's guest runs are surviving and even thriving in this climate. Tom Quinn is a veteran film executive and producer who co-founded Neon in 2017 with a pretty counterintuitive goal, independently financed movies for adults in theaters, a lot of them with awards hopes. Now with the backing from Dan Friedkin, who's a Texas billionaire, Neon has had hits and misses, and it's getting into producing movies as well as releasing them. But everything is defined, for the most part, by Tom Quinn's good taste. One of Neon's first releases was I, Tonya, which got several Oscar nominations and a win for Allison Janney. Neon has released the past four Palme d'Or winners from Cannes. That's the top prize, including this year's Anatomy of a Fall, Triangle of Sadness the year before, and before that, it was Parasite. All of them Best Picture nominees, and Parasite was the first foreign language film to actually win Best Picture. Neon often runs campaigns for awards far less expensively than other studios. They've taken advantage of the Academy's push to include more foreign members. About a quarter of Oscar voters are now outside the U.S. Anatomy of a Fall actually got five nominations this year. It's a pretty amazing number for a French film. Tom's going to take us through the business of releasing those movies, where the money is made and sometimes lost, and how he competes as an independent studio in the modern film world. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Tap. All right, we are here with Tom Quinn, co-founder, CEO of Neon, and a perpetual, not perpetual, but pretty frequent player in the Oscar race. We're going to talk about that. Obviously, you've got Anatomy of a Fall in the Best Picture race. But first of all, welcome. Thanks, Matt. You've been a friend in my head uh, and a podcast. <laughs> I feel like I even know your own child. I know his movie-going habits. So You do, yes. Yeah, it's my Friend in podcast. your head. I like that term. I'm a, I'm a friend in your head. Yes. Um, all right. So I wanted to have you on the show in part because you're a good talker and you know the business better than almost everybody I talk to in the film side. And you have great taste. You have proven it over and over. What is it? Four Palme d'Or winners in a row have been neon films? That is correct. So those are movies that you either took to Cannes or bought at Cannes and they've won the Palm. That's, That's right. Pretty good. <laughs> and three of them later got Best Picture nominations. That is absolutely correct. And one of them, Parasite, won Best Picture. Absolutely. 
So I don't want to slobber all over you here, but let's so let's have a business conversation here. I want to know in the very difficult independent film world where you can easily get wiped out, you can easily get pushed aside by the majors or the streamers now. What was the thesis for launching this company and how have you been able to survive? Well, the thesis was really simple. And, you know, I've spent 27 years in this business, worked on a approximately 400 movies, you know, various genres from all over the world. And so... Survived Harvey Weinstein. Survived Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> survived Samuel Goldwyn, survived... <laughs> all the greatest guys. All, all the all greatest the icons. <laughs> uh, loved working for Mark Cuban. Um, but, you know, I basically spent seven years at multiple companies and uh, took lessons with me from each and every company. And uh, at which point I left the Weinstein company, we had created our own boutique label there, Radius, it was time for me to assemble all the things that I believed in. And one of them was the power of cinema. You know, the irony is that I was there early days at Magnolia with Mark Cuban, Todd Wagner, and collapsing windows, you know, combining VOD with theatrical to make independent film sustainable. But I always believed that the real power of this industry, where we cross-pollinate success, is in theater. And the kinds of movies that I wanted to support and be a part of and grow with were the best cinema the world had to offer. The other part that was important to me is that, you know, I love directors, I love auteurs. And, you know, that was super important to me that we would do movies that were pushing cinema forward and trying to appeal to an under 35 audience. Films that have no aversion to certain genres or foreign language subtitles, whatever. And then the last piece is cultural relevance. Some people dismiss this as social impact. I, I don't view it that way. I view it as something that it's movies that have purpose, but there's a real intent behind it. And you combine all three of those things. And the name itself for me, Neon, was an inspiration for the business. Neon represents this very ephemeral gas that when captured inside of this glass tube, it, it glows. All right, but launching a theatrical distribution company in 2017 with the goal of getting people to go to theaters for adult-oriented movies, especially young people, especially you know at a time when the streamers were going completely crazy and taking all these projects off the table, like that seems pretty counterintuitive. Yes, I can't say my timing was great. And I can't say that the business plan overall... It wasn't selling like hotcakes inside of the industry. It took me a year and a half to raise enough money to launch the company. That, and that's mostly from Dan Friedkin, correct? The Texas. Well, no, the original guys. investor in this company was a company called SR Media, Sparkle Roll Media, which okay. you know loosely attached to Jackie Chan. And I met them in Toronto. This young woman from Hong Kong named Joe Tam said, "I've heard a lot about you. I'd like to be in business with you." And we bought a movie together that Toronto. It was our first movie, Colossal, starring Anne Hathaway. Sure. And six weeks later, operating agreement, money in the bank. It was one of the few Chinese deals pre-election that, that closed. And they were incredible owners. But post-election, they were very amenable to selling their stake. And Dan Freakin came in a year later, just after we bought Itania, which was essentially six months into the run of the company. But it took a long time to put the money together. And it was sort of a fluke. I, I have to admit, I'd almost given up. But I knew with the, the amount of relationships that I had 
garnered over the course of my career at Goldwyn, Magnolia, at Radius, that there would be a plethora of filmmakers that I could go to to build a slate, both on the nonfiction side, both on the genre side, both on the global side. And one of those individuals that stood out to me, someone I had had a 15-year relationship with, Bong Joon-ho. I'd done almost all of his movies, and it didn't matter what he was going to do next. It was going to be a neon film, and we were going to go for broke and pre-buy it. So you went to Cannes with that film already pre-bought? Already bought. And first time I saw it was at the competition screening at the Lumiere in Cannes. It's fantastic. But that looks like an overnight success, but it was 15 years in the making. Right. And there's no way you sat there and said, this is the best picture winner. I know it. <laughs> I, I did not say that. But what I did say, and at some point you have to believe, you have to, it's yeah. this Quixotean pursuit. Bong Joon-ho for me was the best director in the world. And he was always dismissed as the best Korean director. And I said, well, that's not how we talk about Guillermo del Toro. It's not how we talk about all these other... Right. Inaritu. Inaritu. Yeah, right, right, and I right. Said, Quaron, Wong, yeah. for me, has always been my favorite director. And, and this is the moment that he is going to... He had the acclaim inside of the industry. But what I did understand is he had never had the awards claim. He'd never really been part of a big-time Oscar race. And his biggest shot was Okja at Netflix, but it didn't pan out. And so I felt like all of that unused affinity for Bong was going to come to play in Parasite. When I did know we were going to win Best Picture was when the ensemble won SAG. That's when I said, this has never happened before. It's almost more historic than the 92 years of history of Parasite winning Best Picture. But that to me, that's the night that we booked the Soho House and we said, we're going all the way. Right. I went to that party and and I think I asked you that same question there at Soho House that night. But what did you spend on that campaign? Because what's what's been interesting to me is your ability to compete with these major studio Oscar campaigns on these films that are not traditionally or necessarily automatic best picture contenders. And you pulled it off with Parasite. What did you spend on that? So all in $20 million in PA, all in. So that's counting everything from day one all the way through to the win. But that counts the release PA too, the prints and advertising, the, the amount you spend on the release. That's the entire distribution cost for the film. It's, it's the awards budget, it's the direct advertising budget, oh. the creative budget, the publicity budget. And so, very efficient. Very, I mean, most releases will get their separate theatrical release budget, and then they will also spend 10 to $20 million on a serious Best Picture campaign. That's right. And if I were to give you some overview of how we've approached direct hardcore awards costs, like trade advertising, specific publicity events around any particular awards category, mm -hmm. and or screeners getting up on the portal, the total amount that we've spent across our 32 Oscar nominations, that total amount for awards is probably the same total that Netflix spent on Maestro <laughs> alone this year. And I'm not, that's not a discredit to them at sure. all because they have a different model. A, yeah. the global spend, it pays off, but we are a much smaller company and you know we have to make each dollar count. You're very good at getting attention. I will say on Monday, you were at the Oscar nominees lunch. They, you know, all the nominees get together for the big class photo. Uh, I was there. I saw you there. And you did a very smart thing. You brought the dog from Anatomy of a Fall. And I was sitting at a press table and literally every journalist got up, went over with their camera and started taking videos of this freaking dog. And lo and behold, in every story from that lunch, 
the dog was prominently mentioned. Very, very smart. And I'm sure other campaigns were jealous. It was uh, a silver bullet. It was fantastic. <laughs> and uh, when in doubt, always go with the dog. Always go with the dog. <laughs> and, and that dog is amazing. Exceptionally talented. An absolute pro. And for me, it was really just day one, an emotional goal that, that the dog is going to be coming to the Academy Awards. I'll give credit to Christina Zisa and the publicity team at Neon, who is incredible. They devised the perfect moment to actually have an impact on voting, and they brought Messi to the nominee. Messi is election. the dog, yes. Yeah. And if you haven't seen the movie, they prominently featured in the movie. Prominently featured and, and, and might be more guilty than you think. So let's go to Anatomy of a Fall, because I want to get into the little bit of the nitty gritty of, of the business model behind a movie like this. You picked it up at Cannes. It ended up winning the palm and it grossed about five million domestic. So how is that a win for you? Explain the model, what you spent on the movie, what you spent to release it and how you make your money back. So going into that movie, you bought for under a million dollars acquisition, North America. So we just, also yeah, own just Canada. North American rights. And we go into that release, you know, we predicted, we believed, you know, not everything works out, but in Cannes before it won the Palme d'Or, our discussion with MK De, incredible sales rep for the film, I believe this is going to be a best picture contender because I could see it as a multi-tier nominee. You know, having had some experience post-Parasite, mm -hmm. you start to get a feel for these things. The other part is the Palme d'Or winner being an incredible uh, signifier for a best picture contender. It's become more important lately. Way more important. And Triangle of Sadness last year, same thing. Director, screenplay, best picture. And so the minute that that happened, we got extremely bullish. But bullish for us is honestly, you know, we were projecting a $3 million gross, which any foreign language film that grosses over a million dollars is a success. And I, I know the rest of the industry doesn't see that way, but business I've worked in is it, it is a success and it's hard to do. And so the idea that we would spend $2 million all in to get to three, it's not going to sustain the company for an entire quarter, but it's going to be a really nice size profit. Well, you also have an output deal at Hulu. And that is so important because obviously for a lot of these movies, people aren't going to see them in theaters. And that adds to your bottom line. I mean, what is, I mean, you have to tell me the number, but like is the Hulu deal has to be pretty significant. The split of revenue for most of our films, and it's not the same for every film, but if you were to equate that the theatrical rental is about 30% of your total revenue pie within the first two-year ultimate, then home ent for this film would home not be as, yep. would, would not be VOD, EST, DVD, would not be 40%. It would actually be much lower. This film is actually going to way over-index uh, on home entertainment. It's going to quadruple our original projection, which is pretty As good. I'm sure Triangle of Sadness also did. Same thing. And we don't have the money right, to compete on a direct advertising level on the award side with the studios or Netflix. But what we do have is we can always be first. We can be first to market. You know, all of these movies, they're all open on the same weekend, first weekend in October. We can also be fast. We are small, nimble. We're only 55 people. We've doubled in size in the last three years, but it's still very small. We can make decisions on the fly. We can literally change the entire campaign day to day to day. Me and my team, we've worked together for about 10 years. I don't know if you know Leah Yardam at Perception. Sure. She's been with us since the beginning, since I, Tanya, Brooke Blumberg from Sunshine Sachs, Ryan Werner from Synetic. 
This is a well-oiled team. We've done every single Oscar campaign with this group. And my team here at Neon, we've worked together for almost 10 years. That familiarity with each other and, and to know what the signs are along the way is, is incredibly valuable. And the last piece is to have fun. We always manage to have fun inside of a serious, serious Oscar season. <laughs> I think those things are overlooked at other companies. The other stuff that's really valuable, and it's not the whole playbook, but being first to, to airlines. We love getting early on airlines between Newark and LA. So scale of one to 10 on the annoyance scale, how annoyed do you get when everybody fawns over A24 as the modern <laughs> independent film releasing company? You know, I, it's hard to get upset because I know everybody who works there. We're all we're all old old time in New York. But they have a hedge fund behind them. You've got a billionaire behind you. These are not like you know podunk outfits operating out of somebody's closet. Yeah, and you know they're over two hundred people, and their overhead has to be sustained by a different business plan. And when mm -hmm. we won Parasite Best Picture, I was asked this question. Well this is going to change your business dramatically. I was like, no, it just validated everything that we want to do. But, you know, it, it's never been important for us to be cool. <laughs> I got to say your merch sucks. Like the A24 merch is much better. They have like scented 100%. candles. Yours is, what is yours even? I, I went on the website. Uh, ours, and ours is in service of the movie. I, I will I will show <laughs> you what our merch is. And and this this is... This, this is great audio, by the way. Showing I know, me your We do the Decalogue of the year's movies and we send uh -huh. it out to 3,500 critics and we've started selling this. And that this is our merch. The movies okay. are the merch. That's All the right. focus. So I want to talk about another recent movie because it gets to the business here. You guys released Ferrari in the US, which was the Michael Mann movie that cost over $100 million or about $100 million. Did not do great in theaters. Ended up grossing about $38 million worldwide. So everyone involved with Ferrari pretty much lost money, except, I guess, you guys, right? So, like, walk me through that deal and how you protect yourself when releasing a movie like this. Well, it's the largest number that we've ever paid for a film. We bought it for $15 million, But it was going to sit as a streaming premiere at Paramount for $30 million. That was what was backing that film. They were happy to relinquish it. We were willing to also match that with the same number in PNA. So you you paid fifteen to release it, and you bought it for fifteen. So a thirty yes. million dollar investment. And you know we spent a lot of time with Michael. We spent a lot of time with the producers. We spent a lot of time with the bank. And I don't think that there was anybody willing to put the time and effort into trying to understand and figure out how to bring all these parties together to ensure that this film was going to be released theatrically. The idea that a Michael Mann film would go straight to streaming to me was an absolute disaster. And I saw the movie twice and talking to Michael about it, understanding where he wanted to go, I thought we were a great match. And the difference for this film, and I'll give our investor a lot of credit, you know, since it is such an outsized acquisition for us, Dan Freakin and Ryan Freakin, we all watched the movie together. Dan and Ryan are the investors at the Freakin Group inside of Neon. And so we bought that movie together, which we had never done before. And it didn't perform as expected. But how does that waterfall make you whole or does it? I disagree that it didn't perform to expectation because, number one, we are exceptionally conservative. We always play to the bottom line. Yeah, nobody thinks a Michael Mann movie is going to gross 18 million domestic, though. Well, you have to look at Black Hat. You have to look at post-pandemic. You have to look at 
other similar movies. There, there are so many reasons that if you were to over project that film, I'm just not in that business. We're in the accountability business. We're in the sustainability business. Yeah. We're I guess not the, in the real question business. is who would invest to pay $100 million to make the movie if you don't expect to make more than $18 million domestic? I don't know what the final budget of the film is. And, you know, I understand the predicament of trying to make sense of that budget. But there are other things that I would say. And, and number one is, you know, the idea that this film was built the extraordinarily old-fashioned way, pre-sales, right. multiple individual distributors around the world. None of that's crossed. Lots so the, of rich people in Europe with money in this movie. The opportunity to, to take a windfall that wouldn't sit behind one single studio spend is, is an astronomical opportunity. So I understand why it happened. The other part is, Michael did this himself. You know, Michael put the industry on his back. What the industry can no longer do for Michael, Michael did for himself. Mm -hmm. And as an 80-year-old maestro delivering that film, I give him nothing but absolute kudos for pulling it off. And, and I think it's his most intimate, most personal, and most telling film that he's ever made. The landscape of independent film is littered with the carcasses of successful distributors that went into production and thought they could do it themselves and spent a ton <laughs> of money and ended up going bust. Do you fear that? I fear it every day. And, <laughs> and I, I fear it every day because I, I worry about everything every day. But the reality is we didn't know how to do a Best Picture campaign when we launched Parasite, but we learned. And we've taken baby steps to get our feet wet on the production side. We started with a $600,000 movie, moved to a $1.5 million movie. We've graduated to an $8 million movie. And this year, we're going to graduate to $15 million movies. Now, the reason why we're graduating, we feel more confident we're getting access to bigger movies, but we've also built a bigger boat. We now have an international sales division that can monetize these films abroad. We did not have that at all. We're saving that commission for ourselves. And we've incorporated production into our facility which we have an incredible facility at Comerica. And Hulu's been a your great... Money, your money. Yeah. Your production money, yeah. Yes, the man. So what, what did you learn from the Parasite campaign about a, running a Best Picture campaign? The one thing that's key that people might not recognize. You have to believe. You never want to be the front runner. Never want to be the front runner. And I've been the front runner in other categories, but being second, third, fourth, coming from behind... Ascending at the right time, uh, so much better. Do you think Oppenheimer is vulnerable? Well, the postscript to that is you never want to be the front runner unless you're Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are those years where the front runner just steamrolls everything, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to like Slumdog Millionaire or right. you know, the Lord of the Rings year or things like that. Ultimately, having confidence in your film to hold back the velvet rope approach, the idea of forcing people to stand around the block, you know, it ultimately is a much more rewarding experience. And what I would say is, I don't know that Moonlight would have won Best Picture had it launched day one on a streamer. I believe that the slow and steady command of what an audience has to commit to a film in theater changes the entire dynamic of how far you can push that audience. So you think that's why Netflix hasn't won Best Picture? I think Netflix is extraordinary at the Oscar game. You know, Lisa Tabak. I wouldn't snooze on her any day. Yeah. But they garner far more nominations than they do wins. And I think that's a testament to being able to truly reach a global, massive audience 
inside of the platform, which the number one reason why your film gets nominated is because, because somebody watched it. That's yeah. always the goal. Right. That helps at the beginning, but it doesn't end up winning often. Like I think back to the year that Green Book beat Roma. Yeah. And like Roma is clearly the superior film, but I do think there's sentiment against that streaming debut is, you know, all the things they did. Green Book was a traditional Hollywood studio released, you know, went to Toronto and the path to the Oscars was much more traditional and acceptable by the Academy. And I would say that theatrical box office is the scorecard. Mm -hmm. It's not as meaningful today as it was six years ago, but I still believe that for a certain voter, it really does mean something. Totally. If Oppenheimer had flopped, we would not be talking about it. I think that's right. And and the other part is, you know, at some point it is a meritocracy. I I, I do believe in large part the majority of winners, they, they earn their way there based on what the film is. It's a popularity contest also. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis last year on Everything Everywhere, like, come on. She's Hollywood royalty and she got it because it was a culmination of a great career, great family, and she was enthusiastic the entire time. Yeah, she wanted in the room. At some point, if the movie gets you there. I mean, Bong was doing that himself. He was very good in the room. Extraordinary. In, the, in all of these events and everybody, I mean, he, he was like the center of attention and that's kind of what you need. Bong shifted the center of attention. You know, there was some discussion that Bong should speak English because he does. But he said, that's not my native language. I'm speaking to my audience at home, which is the center of my universe. And the idea that he was moving everybody's focus there through Parasite, to me, that was the most brilliant move of all. And, and being authentic to yourself and who you are, regardless of what the outcome may be, I think authenticity is also, in some parts, undervalued in this industry. But he wanted in the room. By the way, the last thing is, Coda also wanted in the room. It was such an extraordinary teachable moment. And you could tell. You right. could feel the warmth and applause. And there are certain categories and awards this year that you can see the same thing happening. And people want to be a part of that. Yeah. They want to be swept up into the momentum of a campaign. And they, they vote. For, that's why I say it's a popularity contest. Every, there's a lot of good movies. But you got to have a narrative. Um, all right. Good luck to you at the Oscars. Good luck with your upcoming slate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Matt. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, are you watching the new season of True Detective? I am. I'm not caught up, but I, I am watching. I am enjoying it, although I don't totally understand everything going on. I have to listen to the watch recaps uh, with Chris and Andy where they go over the whole episode, but I am enjoying it. You know who is not enjoying it is Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of the True Detective franchise. He wrote on Instagram that I certainly did not have any input on this story or anything else. Can't yeah. blame me. He's upset that they borrowed the the <laughs> spiraled satanic symbol from season one and, and put it in season four. You cannot screw around with the mythology of the original True Detective. Uh, Issa Lopez, the creator of season four, has taken the high road and said that I wrote this with profound love for the work he made and love for the people that loved it. So Classic. she is taking the high road. Nick Pizzolatto is not. Although it's kind of funny, the ratings for this season they're up to about 12.7 million viewers per episode per HBO across platforms. That is actually higher than season one. And the, really? wow. and the reviews are actually higher on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So wow. I think Issa Lopez and HBO are getting the last laugh here. I do feel like HBO has made a bigger push on this season than any season before. 
Yeah, they wanted to relaunch it. They yeah. and and they had Jodie Foster and a big yeah. star, and they spent a bunch of money on it. So that is actually my prediction. I believe that HBO is going to announce a new season of True Detective after mm. the conclusion of this one. I think the ratings are there. They will figure out what to do. Uh, we'll see if Lopez is involved or not. But I do think they will do more True Detective after this season. Yeah, it felt like this was the deciding season. If it didn't work, they had to probably give up. Totally. Uh, the funny thing is, is how many people get paid on True Detective for doing literally nothing, including Nick Pizzolatto himself, which makes sense. If you create a franchise on TV, you get paid. But like McConaughey is still getting paid oh, wow. on this season. Why? Was he technically a producer on season one? Yeah, because they're executive producers on season one. And the credit and payment transfers through all seasons of the show. There's a producer, Steve Golan, who passed away, sadly, and is still getting paid on this show. Anonymous content represented Pizzolatto and was attached as producers of the first season, and they are still getting paid on this one. So a lot of hands out on True Detective, but I think it is still a big franchise for HBO and doing well, so they will do more. It's funny that this is doing well because if you look online, there seems to be a lot of discourse critically about how the season's not actually good. You know, all the initial belief was that it was great. And then I guess everybody saw it. Now all the critics don't like it. And so it's funny to hear that ratings wise, it's actually the best the show has ever been. Yeah, I, listen, I think people complain. It is a little bit hard to follow sometimes. They are. And... Season one was hard to follow. Well, that's the thing is it's a crime show. People that watch it sequentially are going to be a little frustrated until they get to the conclusion. Look, I all think these the shows critics just ask questions. They ask questions for five episodes and then they try to land the plane on episode six. That's what season one did. Right. And that is how all these are structured. And the critics saw all of them in advance. So the critics knew where it ends up. So hopefully that bodes well for the final episode. We will see. But yeah, more True Detective coming, I believe. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Tom Quinn. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 